Welcome to Community Care Conversations, a podcast series sponsored by Elevate Health of Pierce County, Washington, and One Pierce Community Resiliency Fund, a subsidiary of Elevate Health. This episode of Community Care Conversations features host Robert Marshall Wells, Director of Communications for Elevate Health. Today's conversation focuses on the Tacoma Needle Exchange. Robert's guests are two representatives of the Needle Exchange, Dr. Paul Lakoski, Executive Director, and Stephanie Prohaska, Director of Operations. Now here's our host, Robert Marshall-Wells. Hello, I'm Robert Marshall-Wells, the host for this episode of Elevate Health's podcast, Community Care Conversations. Our guests today are Dr. Paul Lakoski, Executive Director of Tacoma Needle Exchange, and Stephanie Prohaska, the organization's Director of Operations. Thank you both for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Thank you for the opportunity. So for those who may be unfamiliar, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about the Tacoma Needle Exchange, maybe a brief history, a little overview. The Tacoma Needle Exchange was started by Dave Purchase in 1988. It is the oldest legally sanctioned and community-supported syringe exchange in the United States. Um, and it was started after Dave recognized that some of his clients, um, he was a drug and alcohol counselor, were getting sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had read about harm reduction efforts in, the, in Amsterdam, um, where they were distributing free needles, clean needles, to intravenous drug users um, to help quell the spread of hepatitis. It was an effort led by people who use drugs to distribute syringes to people who use drugs. So it was really a grassroots effort. And so he read about those efforts, um, and he thought he could import that method to the United States. And so in 1988, he set up a TV dinner tray on a street in Tacoma and started exchanging used syringes for new sterile syringes. And here we are. And here we are, 35 years later. 35 years later. It's amazing. So how long have each of you been at the exchange and and what brought you to this work? Stephanie, we'll start with you. I have been at this organization for seven years and uh, I started doing work at a local shelter here in Tacoma and have just been doing work with nonprofits ever since. And it's just sort of transitioned from different roles in nonprofits and this felt like the right step. And Paul, how about you? I have been the executive director for almost six years. I've been involved with the organization for just over seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So as we understand it, the exchange was started largely in um, response to the HIV crisis. Um, and as you mentioned, hepatitis. Um, for those, again, who may be unfamiliar, why is the exchange still needed? And how has it made a difference in our region? The exchange is still needed because there are still people in the community who need services. It's changed over time from being a need focused on HIV and hep C to the opioid epidemic. And I feel like that is something over time it's going to keep changing depending on what folks who are living houseless or that are having struggling with the opioid crisis or drug addiction, it's going to change. You know, it changed from the 80s to the 90s, the 90s to the 2000s. So depending on what people are struggling with, we want to be there for them. Right. 
Paul, you mentioned earlier that uh, the needle exchange is the oldest in the United States, legally sanctioned in the United States. What other communities in Washington or nationally now have needle exchange programs? Do you know? So there are more than 500 operating syringe exchanges in the United States. Um, And a lot of that um, is due to the efforts of Dave Purchase, because not only did he start the Tacoma Needle Exchange, he was one of the founding members of the National Harm Reduction Coalition, um, which formed in the early 90s with about 12 other folks um, to support syringe exchange and expand syringe exchange. So he started an organization called NASIN, which is the North American Syringe Exchange Network, which is also operated by us. And it is the largest distributor of harm reduction supplies, technical assistance in the United States. Um, If you go to nason.org, you can see the map, which is the directory of syringe exchanges in the United States. Um, We created that largely with Stephanie's help uh, in 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is now a very user-friendly map. You can look at it. You can see where the syringe exchanges are, what services they provide, what hours are available. And so Washington State was a huge leader in that, Um, the state funds syringe exchanges. Um, Some of the exchanges on the map are locally funded. Uh, Some of them are volunteer run. Some of them are part of federally qualified health centers. So there's a huge diversity in the capacity each each exchange. But many of those exchanges got their start because of assistance from the organization that Dave started, as well as Hmm. the other National Harm Reduction Coalition, which he helped found. That's quite a legacy. Absolutely. So um, how is the Tacoma Needle Exchange funded, and what's your annual budget? The Tacoma Needle Exchange is funded through a variety of sources. We get some foundational funding. We get private donations. We get some funding from the state. um, We get some federal pass-through dollars. Our budget has grown. Um, It's currently around a million dollars a year, Um, and that's a huge leap from 1982 when Dave, or 1988 when Dave had about $3,500 worth of needles that he purchased wow. himself. <laughs> so one person on the street with $3,500 as a budget, and, and now today it's a million dollars annually. And what's your staff? Uh, the syringe exchange staff is about eight folks. Okay. Um, plus we have support staff in our administrative office that help that out. So the whole organization, Dave Purchase Project, which runs the Tacoma Needle Exchange and Nason, is around 22 staff right I now. Okay. And that's up from five, six years ago when there were seven staff. Wow. Okay. So, Madam Director of Operations, how is all of this organized? How do you roll out these services and what do they involve? Um, for the Tacoma Needle Exchange, so when we come in in the morning. We, When I started, as Paul said, we had seven people, one vehicle, one building. Um, we have definitely grown immensely, and we now have 22 staff. Uh, we have two buildings, one administrative building, one, um, one building for outreach, mm-hmm. and we have four vehicles. We've been very grateful to have a really supportive community, and so we operate several different locations, um, Tuesday through Thursday, 11 to 4, and Friday 1 to 6, we have a, a site across the street from the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department where um, community members, participants can come and get services. And then we use the uh, vehicles that we have to provide mobile deliveries for participants in the community who cannot come and get to us. We also work with the Puyallup Tribe to provide services at a site that they have selected for their tribal members. 
And then we also are still at our longest running site at 14th and G Street. And we work with the people who are in, living in that community mm-hmm. to um, the Catholic community workers to provide uh, services at that n- neighborhood. So we come in in the morning and um, the outreach team loads up vans, stocks the building, and goes out for the day if they are doing mobile deliveries or working at one of those sites. And then the folks who are working at that building have a dispensary window that people in the community can come to and um, get get services. We also provide HIV and Hep C testing on Mm. Thursdays. Mm -hmm. And we have a case manager, peer navigator, that uh, people in the community can come and get services from. And that's everything from if they need to get a Washington State ID or a birth certificate so that they can get into housing in the area, or if they want to get wound care services, that's available through us at the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department on Fridays from one to three. Um, And we offer a $10 incentive for anybody who comes over and gets treated. So there's lots of different services. It's a lot more than just Just giving out syringes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is something that people who may not be aware of what a syringe service program does it's it's a lot more than just giving out syringes. Right. It's giving people hope, right? Which is, explains why you've grown so much in in recent or over the years, right? Uh, because you're providing these additional services. Is this fairly common for uh, needle exchanges around the country um, in terms of the services, the the breadth of services? So the breadth of services really depends on the capacity of the organization. But what I like to emphasize is that syringe exchange, the actual exchanging of syringes, is is incredibly important, but is the least of what most syringe exchanges do. That is that is what gets people in the door. Mm. Um, that is what gets folks in the door. That's what starts building those relationships so that when people need other services, they can come there and get them. The Even the change in services that we have provided in the last three years during the pandemic, I mean, has changed dramatically. Um, one of the things we try to do, and I think a lot of syringe exchanges do, is they take their lead on what services are needed from their participants. Mm. Um, and so one of the things Stephanie mentioned is wound care clinic. A few years ago, um, staff noticed that people were having a lot of skin and soft tissue infections. Um, and if you know about injection drug use, I would say around 80% of people who inject drugs regularly have a skin or soft tissue infection at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and staff noticed it and said, well, you know, we should do something about that. So we partnered with um, the health department as well as community health care. Um, I wrote a small grant. We got some funding from um, a local foundation, um, enough to support free wound care on site at the syringe exchange. Um, as Stephanie said, we provide a $10 incentive for people who come in and actually get a wound treated. Um, and that saves the average uh, individual that shows up at a hospital um, and has to be admitted for a skin or soft tissue infection, it's thirty dollars to $40,000 to treat that person for a month. Wow. Um, and so if we can get that person in at the clinic early on, before it gets that way, we've saved thousands of dollars. And because those people often show up and it is charity care that they're given, um, it's a real savings to the community, as well as just bottom line, a real uh, service to the individual who does not have to go through that pain and suffering with right. that infection. Right. So service delivery is really determined a lot by what our participants are telling us. Fentanyl test strips, we started giving those out five years ago because people wanted to avoid fentanyl. 
Mm. Um, Narcan, the Narcan vending machines we have now, because with the prevalence or, uh, of fentanyl in the drug supply or the prevalence, we had to address it some way. So we were approached by an organization that said, you know, we would love to be able to work with you to get some Narcan vending machines out. Um, and so we got those out and, you know, we've already had more than 200 boxes of Narcan dispensed from those machines to people in the community. So we really, we really, our service delivery is really based on what are our participants telling us they need and mm -hmm. what are our outreach workers witnessing when they're engaging with these folks. Wow. That's amazing. Stephanie, um, you mentioned something that I think I would be ris remiss not to follow up on, and that has to do with COVID. Um, a lot of people um, had to uh, pivot quickly because of COVID, and some lessons were learned as a result of that. Was that the case with the needle exchange? Did you, are you doing things differently now? I mean, supposedly we are coming out of COVID, but um, did it cause some innovative thinking that maybe had you rethink some of the things you were doing and maybe doing them differently now? I think for us it was challenging because the biggest thing that we do at the exchange is engage with participants, right? right and so exactly. it was hard to not be able to engage with our participants right. as much. Um, we definitely started only allowing one participant in at a time. I think uh, that let us um, offer a lot more privacy in, in our services and um, allowed us more conversation with one participant at a time mm -hmm. and let us develop a more um, a more one-on-one. -on -one. We have always given one-on-one, -on -one, but it's been more limiting when there's other people in the room. Sure. So we started doing that, but also it's important in the work we do to make sure that we are having the participants tell us what they need and not tell them what they need. So we've always gone with that model. And I think the biggest thing they that came out of COVID was, was we really became, outreach workers became you know, makeshift therapists, which was a lot for our team to take on because right. we are not trained therapists. Yeah. But also we became we became the the people that folks came to for basic needs such as hygiene and food. And it it I think a lot of of SSPs a, across Washington would agree with that. Um, we do monthly calls, and, and folks were being asked to do a lot more than just syringe services. Um, they were Our participants really needed basic human dignity items, like, mm -hmm. hey, I need menstrual items. Hey, I need body wipes. And how do you tell a person, I'm not going to give you that? Like, every person deserves the right to feel clean, to feel taken care of, to feel heard. And when you're coming into a syringe exchange and you are not a drug user and you're literally saying, like, I just I would like to feel clean for the day. Right. Every person deserves that right. So our team felt at a loss to not be able to provide some of those items. Um, and that was the biggest thing that for us, we as a team started to try and develop more funding um, to be able to offer things like that, because it is a conversation starter when someone comes in and says, you know, I would like to be able to clean myself today. That's my main goal. And how can you help me meet that goal? Right. Basic needs, right? Basic human needs. Um, how many people, uh, clients do you serve? Um, is it weekly, annually, monthly? How, what, what metrics do you use in order to determine 
Participants get a unique identifier when they become enrolled in the syringe exchange program. Um, we didn't. We actually started that about five years ago. Before that, there, there wasn't. Uh, you could you could count the number of encounters we had, mm -hmm. um, but we really wanted to get kind of more granular in our service delivery and figure out how many people are we actually serving um, and track those uh, services across years and across service category. Right. So a participant gets a unique identifier. Um, we run them through a little algorithm that they can remember. Um, and then if they come back and they don't remember their identifier, we can run them through the algorithm again. So it's very simple. Mm -hmm. um, and we serve probably around 33,000 to 3,500 different individuals every year. And we probably have about 10,000, 10, 11,000 encounters over the course of the year with folks. And that might be someone that we see once a month or some people come in a couple times a week. Mm -hmm. um, but it's about 3,000 to 3,500 unique individuals that seek out services and about 10,000 to 12,000 units of service delivery per year. Okay, well, that's a sizable number. Stephanie, can you give us some sense of uh, what's the profile of the typical participant if there is such a thing? I don't think there is such a thing. I think there's no stereotype of who's going to come into a syringe exchange. I think that's the one of the big issues is people think that they can spot a drug user, uh -huh. and that's a that's and, a joke. And that's what I, that's what I'm asking you. So yeah. Can you give us some some sense the the range of people we're talking about? It's it's anyone. Like for all I know, you could be a drug user, right? Right. Um, and you don't know if I'm a drug user, right? I don't right. know if anybody in this room is a drug user, mm -hmm. and I think that is the stigma that is portrayed is that people think they can spot a drug user and it can be anyone you know and that's why people should carry naloxone because there should not be a this is what a drug user looks like it can be anyone's mom dad uncle cousin brother sister teacher and we should just come with the understanding that a person is a person is a person and we are not the people to cast judgment on anybody for their lifestyle choices. So here we go with the, uh, the uh, where the rubber meets the road part of the conversation. What are the common myths? We're talking about one of them, but I'm sure there are many common myths or objections to the needle exchange or thoughts about the people who uh, use the service what have you heard or what do you continue to hear over the years and what's the response? What should people know, those who are listening to this podcast and know nothing about the needle exchange? So before I address that, I do want to follow up on one thing that Stephanie said, which is Please. I think the, the only thing that you can say about folks that come to the syringe exchange that is in common is they're all looking to make positive change in their life. If they're coming to mm -hmm. the syringe exchange, they're coming because they want to make some positive changes in their life. And that is, without a doubt, I think the only absolute universal characteristic among people who frequent the syringe exchange is they're looking to make positive change, and that's why they come. Um, so if we want to address some of the other issues, um, there, there are lots of arguments that can be made against syringe exchange. There are lots of arguments that are made against syringe exchange, but I need to be really clear about this. None of those arguments are based in science. If we look at the science, the public health science, the economic science, all of the indicators are that, is that syringe exchange makes a positive change in the lives of the people who use them 
and the community in which syringe exchanges are located. Um, it is less expensive to have a syringe exchange in, in the community than it is to not have one, and that seems counterintuitive, but the things that are addressed, like wound care at a mm -hmm. syringe exchange, that wouldn't be addressed if it wasn't there, um, uh, those are cost savings. So there are myths like syringe exchange facilitates drug use. Right. Studies have shown that that is absolutely false. Um, and we have 35 years of good scientific evidence about syringe exchange in the United States and even more abroad that show that the, the common arguments made against syringe exchange are refutable by science. Um, so syringe litter, people say, oh, there's syringes all over. That, that's true, but when a syringe exchange is present and people have a safe place to bring and dispose of their used syringes, that reduces syringe litter in the community. Syringe exchange has not been shown to increase drug use or facilitate drug use. Those are two common arguments. Mm -hmm. um, and so the arguments that can make, let's, let's be honest, the arguments that are made against syringe exchange are opinion taken as fact, and they're moral arguments, they're not scientific arguments. Um, and syringe exchange is a public health service and it should be treated as such. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Community Care Conversations is a podcast series produced by Elevate Health of Pierce County, Washington. Elevate Health's mission is to build and drive community coalitions that result in better and equitable healthcare for all in Washington State and beyond. For more information, visit elevatehealth.org. You both have raised the issue of Narcan and naloxone. I'd like you to talk a little bit about, about that. Uh, it's featured prominently on your website. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to what effects opioids are having in our community um, and how Narcan and Naloxone is helping to, to stem uh, that, that problem. Either of you, please. Narcan, um, which is the, the um, trademark name for Naloxone, which is the generic name, it has been around for years, um, decades. Um, it is used to reverse an opioid overdose. Um, it can only be used to reverse an opioid overdose, no other drugs. Um, and all it does is allow people to keep breathing until EMS or emergency services can arrive. So there's no abuse potential for it. There are no contraindications for Narcan use. Um, the only thing, uh, the only contraindication that has been reported is maybe um, an allergic reaction. If you have an, a slight allergic reaction, but that's in a very small percentage of the population. So it's, it's a widely available drug. Um, or it's it's more widely available than it than it used to be. It should be more widely available. It is only used to reverse an opioid overdose. Um, and if you give it to someone who's experiencing an overdose, but it's not an opioid overdose, it's not going to cause any problems. Mm. Um, and it it is it's not a panacea. It's not going to cure the drug use or misuse problems in the United States. Um, but what it will do is keep someone alive. It's a simple tool that is easily used. Training takes a few seconds that will enable an individual to keep someone alive. And that's all it's good for is keeping people alive. And I think no matter how many arguments people have against 
syringe exchange or how many problems they have with people who use drugs, I think we can all agree that if you can keep someone alive, you should. And that's all naloxone does is keep people alive. Gives you a second chance. Right. Stephanie, um, a common uh, theme that uh, we hear is that naloxone, Narcan, um, is just um, um, it's a get out of jail free card. It allows you to continue to abuse drugs. I mean, so you've heard this. She's she's nodding knowingly. Those listeners. So talk to me. Dispel that myth, please. Speak to that. Well, I can't dispel what people, you know, people's feelings about that. What I can say is that when somebody overdoses um, and I think people should think about the fact that if somebody is overdosing and they die or they are dead, pronounced dead, and they have the ability to come back given that second chance with that Narcan, people should think about the fact if they've ever lost somebody, we all know that this opioid epidemic has affected most people. They, most people are really lucky if they don't know somebody that's been touched by, by the opioid epidemic at this point. I, I think we can all nod our heads right mm-hmm. now and say, if you have not been touched by somebody that, that you know personally, professionally, or otherwise, you, you are very lucky. So to have the ability to give somebody a second chance with Narcan is incredible. And it's not our it's not up to us to decide whether or not that person what that person does with that second chance or that third chance or that fourth chance. Um, so having naloxone or Narcan available to give to community members it should be available to everyone. And if somebody can give it to somebody on on the scene when they need it, it's not up to us to say, you don't deserve to have it. Everybody deserves to be revived and have the option to make choices for themselves. And we shouldn't be the ones to cast judgment on whether or not they get options in their lives. We should just be there when they need and give them those options. Paul, you mentioned a a couple of minutes ago the availability of Narcan through vending machines. Can you talk to us about um, how someone who is interested in um, having Narcan handy in the event, a coworker, a family member, a friend, what have you, um, uh, overdoses, how can they go about getting it? What, What advice can you give them or direction or guidance? Sure. So there are a couple ways to get Narcan. Um, The easiest way is to come to the syringe exchange at 37th and South Pacific, walk in and say, I'd like to get some Narcan. Um, We'll ask you if you've ever received it from us before. If you say no, we'll give you a quick little training. It takes about two minutes on how to do it. And then we'll give you some some Narcan. We'll give you intramuscular IM, um, which is what we give out at the exchange. If you're not comfortable with IM, um, then you can visit one. We do keep... uh, nasal on hand. Um, but if you're not comfortable coming to the exchange or you can't make it to the exchange during hours, we have three machines um, that dispense free Narcan, no questions asked. 
All you give it, all you have to do is is go up to the machine, push a button, and a box of Narcan falls out. If you want training, there's a QR code on the machine. You hold your phone up to it. It, it brings you to our website, which links you to our training videos and information about how to dispense Narcan, um, the proper uh, context in which to give it. Um, it also links you to the Good Samaritan law, which shows that you can, Washington state has a law that says that if you are reviving someone with Narcan, mm -hmm. um, that you are, um, you are held harmless. You won't be charged with a crime. If you have small amounts of drug on you, you won't be charged with a crime for dispensing naloxone because it is a, a prescription drug. Um, so you could walk up to any one of those machines. One's at the Recovery Cafe in Ording Valley. One is the Moore Library, Tacoma Public Library on 56th and South Pacific. And then one is at the First United Methodist Church of Tacoma on 6th and Tacoma. Um, find out when the hours are, walk up, push a button, get a free box of Narcan. The information is right there on the QR codes. It's low as low barrier as it gets. The other thing you can do is Washington State also has a program where you can get Narcan mailed to your home um, if you just go on the um, the People's Harm Reduction Alliance website. There's a link um, and you can get free Narcan mailed to your house. If you fill it out, they will get mail it to your home. Um, everyone should have it. Everyone should know how to use it. Um, all it is good for is saving a life, but that's a very important thing to be able to do. Um, and you had mentioned earlier, um, Narcan is a, is a get out of jail free card. If jail, um, if, if a jail cell is death and I have the key, I'm gonna use it. <laughs> um, and I think that I feel I have no, I have no moral quandary about saving a life. I think the moral quandary should come if you have the ability to save a life, and you don't. Right. Well, we teach people CPR and first aid, right? And and uh, absolutely, <laughs> we have lifeguards at the swimming pool. Why not have Narcan handy in case you need it to save one of our fellow citizens? Um, this is a. I don't mean to. Um, it's not a stupid question, but what is the uh, what are the effects that um, opioids are having on the work that you do in the community, um, particularly at the needle exchange? We're talking about Narcan, but I mean things have changed. You were talking earlier, Stephanie, about how things have changed over the years, and opioids certainly have introduced a new element, right, to um, the way we live not in Pierce County, but across the, the nation. How's it changed the work that you do at the needle exchange? I think it's made it so now, one of the questions that that is on here is, you know, um, what keeps you up at night? What yeah. keeps you awake? Yeah, so and what, I think, okay. I think that, that goes hand in hand with, I was discussing with Paul earlier, what's next? What's the next, what's the next opioid that's gonna come up? Like what's and and we really just don't know we don't know and there's this almost this fear of like what is gonna come next that mm. we are unaware of mm -hmm. that will be and participants are unaware of right um people who use drugs are sometimes unaware of what they're using and that's where that's where overdoses occur because you think you know what you're using, you're unaware of what you're using, and that's where people end up dead um, because they're not aware of what they're using and they're misinformed. Um, 
So you can have all the education you think that you have and think that you're being safe and think that you're using slow, using a small amount, educating yourself. And sometimes you just don't have all of that, all those pieces. And that's really scary is not knowing what's coming next. Paul, the unknown unknowns. Is that also what? It is. It's so, like I said, Five years ago, we started giving out fentanyl test strips because people were trying to avoid fentanyl. Yeah. In the last round of the drug user health survey, nearly 40% of people had used fentanyl. Most of them, many of them deliberately. Um, I think that one of the issues now is with COVID um, and with the pandemic, um, there was the most massive shift in drug use that I've seen in 30 years of working in this field. Um, Almost overnight, um, black tar heroin disappeared, and the only opioid available for most folks was was um, fentanyl. Um, and the people aren't even pretending anymore that the M30s that they're buying on the street are oxycodone. They know that they're they're fentanyl. Um, and so we're not even pretending anymore to avoid fentanyl. We're deliberately seeking out fentanyl. Folks are. Um, and that huge shift caused a major change because fentanyl is much, much more potent than heroin. And the half-life of fentanyl is much shorter. So people who had heroin might use four or five times a day, um, which could be a lot, but people who are using fentanyl might be using 10, 15, 20, 25 times a day. A day? A day. Um, because the half-life is so much shorter. So you could effectively be a functional heroin user, but it's not easy when the drug you're using has such a short half-life, your, your life outside of drug use or pursuing that drug is really diminished. Um, and so the change in the drugs available and the change in the drug use patterns has made it so that we have had to change our services to address a lot of those things. Um, one of the things that we're starting to do, um, besides making Narcan more available, um, is we're starting drug checking. Um, and that's a, a movement that is a long time in coming. Um, we're probably one of, we're one of six um, syringe exchanges in Washington State and probably one of two dozen in the United States that have a machine that can check people's drugs. Um, and so we ask people to bring in a baggie with residue, and then we can check and see exactly what's in that. So we ask them, what did you think you were buying? What did you think you were taking? And we can test it and say, okay, this is what was actually in your drugs. And so we provide them with that information so that they know um, what they're taking. Because as Stephanie said, if people could get access to pharmaceutical-grade heroin, they wouldn't have to take risks with street heroin. And they would know what they're taking and how much they need to take. Um, and they could be aware of what they're putting in their bodies and take measures, harm reduction measures, um, to make sure that they didn't have a problem. Um, but with street drugs, um, you don't know what's in it. You don't know the concentration. You don't know the potency. And so it's really hard to self-medicate in an appropriate way. Um, and so when we provide people with that information, they can take those extra measures. Um, it's not a perfect solution, but we can't let perfect be the enemy of good enough. Mm, right. 
I understand that uh, you are concerned about the impacts on emergency departments in the area and that you have some interesting ideas, some innovative ideas about how we might do business differently. Could you share with us some of those thoughts, please? Well, one of those, I mean, a lot of those issues came up when we have participants who come to the exchange and they say they went to the emergency department and they had to wait for a long time or they weren't treated very well um, or they couldn't get the services they felt they needed Mm -hmm. um, or weren't treated with dignity. Um, And so for the wound care clinic, um, you know, we know that there, we know that emergency departments are busy places. We know that there are doctors who are tired, who are exasperated. And we also know that the folks that we serve don't necessarily go to an emergency department until they are in a real acute care situation, such as with their wounds. Um, And so if we can alleviate some of that stress on emergency departments by providing services earlier, before, they're, before the people are in acute care situation, we can reduce stress on the emergency department, we can save money, we can reduce pain and suffering of our participants. Um, and so if there were places like a drug user hub where folks who use drugs can go to get services from people who want to work with that population, from people who know the circumstances under which that population live and who are sensitive to the needs of that population, um, that could save a lot of money and could save a lot of frustration and could save a lot of suffering and harm um, because we are in the harm reduction business. Um, and it's not right that anyone should have to suffer um, because of that. I mean, if we kind of reevaluate the way that we distribute and provide health care services in this country and, and take a more logical approach, it would be better for everyone. I mean, honestly, single-payer health would alleviate a lot of these issues. We could address issues as to why people are using earlier when they before they start to self-medicate. We could give people appropriate access to mental health services and psychosocial services. Um, we could address a lot of the precursors to drug use. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone who uses drugs becomes a chaotic drug user. In fact, less than 20% of people who use drugs end up in a chaotic drug use spiral. But that 20% ends up costing an outsized portion of money when they show up in an emergency room for services. If we could address those issues early on with appropriate and adequate access to healthcare services, I think a lot of these issues would be resolved. But we have to be bold politically, um, we have to be forward thinking, and provide those services. The bold political that's that's the problem. <laughs> that is the problem. <laughs> and there is the sticking point right there. Oh boy. All right. Um what have we touched not touched on that uh, is important about the work that that you do at the needle exchange or that's going on in the community? I think for a long time people have looked at syringe exchange as kind of this stepchild of HIV prevention and this kind of this bunch of screaming radicals standing outside demanding services. And I think, if anything, what the COVID pandemic has taught us is that syringe exchanges are frontline public health social service providers. We have built the infrastructure. Nason helped build the infrastructure for more than 500 of these places over the world. And we access a population that no one else can access. They come to us because they need services, they trust us, and they want to make positive change. And if we harness that ability of syringe exchanges to access populations, 
we are in many cases the only contact a lot of these folks have with any type of established healthcare or social service care system, and they trust us and they want to come in. So if we harness the power of syringe exchanges and we get beyond the idea that we are facilitating drug use, we can use syringe exchanges to be much more effective frontline public health and social service providers for folks that are really hard to reach and don't trust the established bureaucracy. And we make a really important contribution to the overall well-being of the public health infrastructure in the United States. All right. So, Stephanie, um, for those who are listening to this podcast, what would be your call to action for them? What would you, what can the average citizen do to help? Educate yourselves or contact us if you want more information on harm reduction, what we do in the community, and go get a box of naloxone at one of the vending machines. Click that QR code, figure out how to use naloxone, call text me, call me, beat me. If you want to reach me, I will give you all the information that I can. Um, I don't know it all, but I am willing to, to educate and just remember when you see somebody out there struggling, that somebody's, that's somebody, someone, and they deserve just as much chance, chance as anyone else, because odds are they, they're struggling for a reason Mm -hmm. and they deserve every chance to make it. And just remember that. And remember, naloxone, Narcan, it it can work. Just give it a chance. Give that person a chance to have a chance. And it's important. It, it should be important to care about caring about people. How about you, Doc? I think what makes me hopeful is the fact that we could put a Narcan vending machine in a public library on 56th and Pacific, and that a church in Tacoma would would ask us and be proud to partner with us to put a, a Narcan vending machine in their church, um, and that the number of people who call us up and say we're doing great work and appreciate what we're doing, the young kids who want training, um, that gives me hope. Um, you know, the fact that we are talking about harm reduction, the fact that the president used those words, the fact that the, the last um, Surgeon General used those words, the fact that we are talking about taking steps towards a more rational policy on drug use and how we treat people who use drugs in this country, that gives me hope. Um, you know, there, it, it's easy to get kind of morose in this line of work. And cynical, I would imagine. Uh, And cynical. Um, But what gives me hope on a regular basis is the fact that we get invited to talk at schools. We get invited to talk to community groups. Um, That someone who may have kind of battled us publicly in the past can pull me aside and say, thanks for the Narcan you gave me. I used it to save my kid. Um, Things like that. It's, we are making inroads And it's a hard thing to do, but I think that if we have conversations with folks that don't always agree with us, we can come to the conclusion that it's always good to help someone. And so that's what makes me hopeful. Excellent. All right. Stephanie Prohaska and Dr. Paul Lukoski of Tacoma Needle Exchange, thanks so much for being with us today. We appreciate your work on behalf of the community, and it's been a pleasure talking with both of you. Those who wish to learn more about the Tacoma Needle Exchange can visit the organization's website at tacomaneedleexchange.org. Again, thanks to both of you.
Thank, Thank you. you for the opportunity. This episode of Elevate Health Podcast was produced by Robert Marshall Wells, Joshua Wiersma, and Kelsey Horn. Original music was composed by Riley Eggie, and the episode was engineered and edited by Joshua Wiersma. Please like, subscribe, or follow Elevate Health Podcast wherever you are listening so that you will never miss an episode.